What's up, everyone? Welcome to another edition of Tuesday Talks. I'm Ryan Shepard. I'm your host this week with Ladarian Gillette. We're excited to be celebrating International Women's today. We have an amazing lineup of speakers, so let's get right into it. The Care Atlanta Global Innovation Hub convenes the people and organizations dedicated to defeating poverty by achieving social justice and equity everywhere. The Innovation Hub creates the space, programs, and support systems that can connect leaders with global practitioners in hopes of solving the world's most pressing problems. Tuesday Talks was created to build bridges. We hope that each week our participants leave with a deeper understanding of the topics that we discuss and feel more clear about how they can contribute to solutions in their personal journey. At the Innovation Hub, we celebrate and highlight the leadership of women every day, not just on International Women's Day. And we especially look to highlight expertise from Black, Indigenous, and communities of color. We're committed to centering and uplifting all justice-centered voices in our conversations and programming. International Women's Day is a global celebration of the social, economic, cultural, and political achievements of women. The day also marks a call to action for accelerating women's equality around the world. International Women's Day has occurred for over a century with the first International Women's Day gathering in 1911, supported by over 1 million people. Today, the day belongs to all groups collectively everywhere. Imagine a gender equal world, a world of bias, stereotypes, and discrimination, a world that's diverse, equitable, and inclusive, a world where differences are valued and celebrated. Together, we can forge towards women's equality, and collectively, we can rally around this theme, which is break the bias. So in today's conversation, we'll give space to a group of amazing and pioneering women who are breaking through barriers and gender stereotypes to create a more equitable world for women everywhere. So let me introduce you to our awesome panel. First, I want you to meet Anna Lerner. Anna has spent her career in the intersection of social impact and tech. Originally from Sweden, she's worked and lived on four continents, always focused on complex global challenges and the incentives institutions, and partnerships that are needed to address them. She's currently working at Meta, supporting global strategic partners to deepen their impact. Anna, welcome to Tuesday Talks. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks so much. I'm Next, I want, yes. Next, I want you all to meet Mia Boykins. Mia is a seasoned business development professional with specializations in creating global partnerships and events which support social and economic benefits, such as humanitarian aid, workforce development programs, small business development initiatives, and college scholarship programs in the US, the Caribbean, Europe, and Asia. Mia, welcome to Tuesday's Talks. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being with us. And next, I want you all to meet Stephanie Ula. Stephanie is the director for Generation Equality Engagement on the Girls and Women team at the United Nations Foundation. In her current role, she leads gender policy advocacy and convenes networks of women leaders, male allies, and other gender champions for UN engagement. Her prior work included gender data partnerships for women's financial inclusion and the SDGs and adolescent girls advocacy. Stephanie, happy International Women's Day. Thanks for being with Happy International Women's Day. Thank you all for having me. Absolutely. So let's get right into it today. 
we always open Tuesday talks by asking our speakers to tell us a little bit more about themselves. So I'll ask that each of you share with us the communities that you call home, the identities that feel most prominent for you, and the communities that you're advocating for through the work that you do. So let's start with Stephanie, then Mia, and next Anna. Thanks so much, Ryan. And it's, it's truly a delight to be with all of you today. The best way to start International Women's Day, I think. So I'm a first-generation New Yorker, although I'm living in Oakland currently, although I'm actually in New York right now for the Commission on the Status of Women, which takes place at the UN next week. And I would say that I love this question because um, it, it, it sort of has me reflect on kind of the part of my identity that I'm, I'm sort of feeling most recently, um, which is that my family fled Vietnam and Laos as refugees during the Vietnam War. And I'm thinking about this in particular with the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the Russian invasion of Ukraine and just how, you know, my family, just by privilege and by chance, were lucky to escape as refugees from the horrors of war. But the sort of, you know, lasting kind of intergenerational cycles of trauma, resilience, and survival that sort of emerge from that. And so I think that's always why I've been personally drawn to work at the global level, because of the interconnected nature of our countries, of our politics, um, our decisions, and ultimately our collective power as, as you know, women, people, and, and movements within countries. Awesome. That was a wonderful response. And I agree. Um, the world is definitely interconnected. Um, I identify as an African-American woman, humanitarian, and global citizen. I grew up mostly in New Orleans, but for the last 12 years, I've lived and studied in six countries, including U.S., England, France, Spain, Taiwan, and Jamaica. The persons that I advocate most for would be foster children, elderly, displaced individuals, and also aspiring entrepreneurs. So I'm currently living and studying in Jamaica, uh, working on my PhD. And here I've done a lot of work um, with aspiring entrepreneurs, doing some development trainings, and also uh, founding scholarship funds at both Spelman College and also at the University of West Indies. So I definitely advocate for the aspiring academics and entrepreneurs. Thanks. Excellent. Thanks, Mia. Anna, what about you? I mean, I'm just so inspired just, just from the from the introductions here. This is so good. Um, I I am from the north of Sweden. So if you ask me who how do I kind of identify as and what communities do I support? I'm from the north of Sweden. And everyone that knows me and meets me will say that I lead with my Nord, northerner Sweden kind of identity a lot. At the same time, at this point, I've lived abroad for just as long as I lived in Sweden. Like, so it's there. So I think I actually read uh, a book not so long ago when, when COVID really hit us called Tribe by Sebastian Junger on, on homecoming and belonging. And it struck me when I was reading this in a book club and talking to my friends that probably being an expat and living really far away from your family and really far away from your social network and even kind of like not really understanding the culture around you always and having to kind of catch up uh, is a really big part of my identity. Um, I left and I left, left Sweden and I lived in Southern Africa for five years and I've been in the U.S. for the last, well, 10 plus. Um, and I think it's, I still feel like an expat in the US. Um, so that I think is still a big, yeah, big part of who I am and, and my identity. Um, 
the, the people I, I advocate for, we'll talk a little bit about more about it more later, but I'm really passionate about data. And if you don't show up in data, you just are not accounted for and you're not sort of programmed for. So I think I try to advocate for women at large through data, making sure that gender data is really invested in, even at companies like Meta. Um, and uh, yeah, just lifting the, 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 the marginalized women and that, that won't necessarily show up in data, I think is really, really important. I love it. Thank you for being with us. So let's actually pick pick up right there, Anna. So um, you said a few things that really kind of piqued my interest as we kick off the conversation. And all of it kind of connects back to your um, passion for uplifting the voices of women across the different platforms that Meta supports. So tell us a little bit about why International Women's Day kind of um, creates the opportunity for you all to amplify the work that you're doing on a daily basis. And your specific emphasis on data, as you mentioned, its connection to the SDGs. Why does all of this come together for you in your day-to-day -day work? Yeah, I mean, this is all, this is really a passion subject, so I'll get right into it. Um, but when, uh, at Meta, when we, when I joined some four years ago, I came from the World Bank at the time, um, and I was, I joined to sort of spin up this SDG 7, a rural electrification, a rural electrification program. Shortly after, they're like, mm, let's take a bigger picture. Like, let's think broader than just like SDG 7. Um, let's hunker down on SDG 17, the partnership one. That's really where sort of meta and our platforms can, can really be put to its, its utmost impact. Um, what should we, where should we start? How do we kind of, what's the best strategy for us? Um, you and Global Compact and many others recommend large companies that if you, want to start working on the SDGs, look at like, look inward first, like try to align with your own businesses and your own capabilities and where you're already investing and think about how that connects to the SDGs. Um, so we did this big kind of strategy exercise thinking of like, where are our super powers as we call them at, as we're a tech company um, and where are the biggest needs, where are we already doing a lot, where are we not doing much? And interestingly, this is a while back, but some four or five years ago, SDG 5 and SDG on gender equality and SDG 13 on climate change was the, were the ones that kind of stood out as like an opportunity where we could have outsized impact by leveraging our platforms and our users, but haven't really done much. Um, so I picked SDG 5. I was like, gender equality it is. Let's do it. Um, so since we've really doubled down on, on gender data, that's sort of where that was the intersection of the the big issue, complex issue that we're not investing enough in and where we're really uniquely positioned and actually have a responsibility to contribute. Um, so we do a bunch of different things on gender data, supporting partners and, and kind of surfacing the value, trying to advocate for the value of gender data. But one thing I really want to lift is um, this, this last year was the second year in a row where we ran this massive global survey on our platform just surveying around the lives and the needs of women globally. And with a reach of three plus billion people, um, I think we have this unique opportunity and responsibility to make sure that women's needs and, and re lived realities are seen in the data. So that was a big kind of lift on our side to surface some new data, 
um, give a high level overview of, of, of where women is today and, and, and kind of compare a little bit the impacts of, of COVID on women and, and so on. So uh, our gender survey is for me kind of the intersection of that like passion, my belief and the core capabilities of our platforms. Excellent. I thank you for going into more detail around that. Um, so I dropped in the chat. We throw around a lot of um, acronyms and terms uh, at CARE and in our work. And sometimes folks might not be familiar with this. So I dropped in the, a link to the sustainable development goals um, that folks who may not be familiar can go and check out. I think that's a perfect bridge, Stephanie, to some of the work that you're leading in your organization more broadly. Um, obviously, the UN is not new to advocating for gender and specifically uplifting women and girls. Um, talk to us a little bit about that history and how you all continue to work each day to create the space for women's rights and gender uh, equality in all things. That I think in so many ways, the question is, is could be reversed actually. So it's sort of like, how do feminists and women's rights activists, how, what is the history of them carving out space at the UN for work on gender equality? Um, because I think that space was never necessarily willingly given in the history of it. It was fought over, negotiated over, carved out by sort of tireless efforts. And it really dates back to the founding of the UN. Um, in particular, where Latin American and Pan-American feminists fought for more inclusive human, human rights language in the UN Charter, the creation of the status, uh, the Commission on the Status of Women, which is a principal body of the United nations and you know coming from that you know looking at sort of the period between 1975 and 1995 and I know I'm going way back but when we're talking about sort of history I think we have to start and, and understand sort of the lineage of where all of this work comes from and what it sort of builds on um, but in that sort of two decade kind of period there were four world conferences on women that were organized by the UN that took place in Mexico City, Copenhagen, Nairobi and Beijing and these were intergovernmental sort of conferences negotiations to agree kind of out outcome documents, declarations on women's rights. But in my mind, even more importantly, there was an NGO or civil society forum attached to each of these conferences where feminists, women's rights activists, advocates, researchers, all from all over the world were able to meet. And so I think what's so interesting about the question of kind of the, the UN's relationship to feminist movements, to women's rights activism, often um, comes from the simple act of just being able to bring women together. So when I think about sort of these women, sort of leaders, activists, meeting regularly at these conferences, they happen to sort of every five years um, and, and in all sorts of places, most famously in the mud in a suburb of Beijing because they weren't, you know, the Chinese government wanted to kind of isolate them from the official government negotiations. Um, these women with sort of their different countries, their different perspectives, but you know, that they managed to, in these spaces, create long alliances, friendships and networks that had ripple effects in you know, their countries and their regions and their communities, um, in effect, kind of creating a global women's and feminist movement, which was really made up of multiple movements, but you know, was very much sort of uh, coming out of a space that they were able to utilize with all of these sort of UN negotiations and sort of UN advocacy. And you know, I'll just focus on sort of the 1995 Beijing conference because that was the last and sort of most progressive intergovernmental agreement um, on women's rights and gender equality. It was, you know, the deck result of sort of decades of work by civil society activists and feminists well before it came to the UN. And it was a high, high watermark for the work. But after Beijing, sort of there was a backlash, right? There was a rollback on the rights agreed. There was a lack of funding for implementation and action and generally sort of a closure of civil society space in a lot of authoritarian countries. And, you know, 
in 2020, it was sort of, we, we the, the, I think the kind of global feminist community, the UN wanted to commemorate and recognize the 20th anniversary of the Beijing um, conference. And so out of that was born an initiative called Gender, Generation Equality, um, which I'm happy to talk a little bit more about, uh, you know, in, in the subsequent discussion, but it's essentially a multi-stakeholder set of action coalitions and forums. It's convened by UN women. And, you know, most excitingly in 2021 last year, um, there was $40 billion worth of pledges and commitments from governments, private sector, civil society, youth organizations, um, philanthropies, uh, you know, CARE being kind of an organization among them, um, pledging to kind of accelerate action on gender equality across a range of wonderful and interesting issue areas. So that's sort of where we are in terms of the history and where we are currently. I love it. Yeah, that's a, a it's a brilliant kind of summary of many, many decades of history. And it's fascinating to see how that work continues and how it continues to show up each day. Uh, Mia, let's get you in. I know we may be having some connectivity issues, but we'll work through them. It's not anything we haven't dealt with at Tuesday Talks before. Um, you mentioned in your in your intro uh, some of the amazing work and research that you're doing, and that you're also completing a PhD. Tell us a little bit about your studies. What are you writing your thesis on? What inspired you to go down that path? Bring us up to speed on all of it. Thank you so much for your question. Yes, I'm in Jamaica, so connectivity is an issue frequently here. Uh, my thesis is focused on understanding African-American women state judges um, with the specific focus on Louisianian state judges. Um, the reason why I wanted to get into this field is because I really wanted to highlight the work that Black women are doing in the political sphere generally and also highlight the, the work that we're doing in the United States um, with various different elections. Also, when I was doing research, I noticed that there was a gap when speaking about African-American women in politics. It's mostly um, academia, you know, or artic articles written about state legislator. And there's not any information about state judges or judges in general when it comes to African-American women in politics. So I wanted to contribute to the knowledge base, um, especially regarding with state judges and women from my home state. I plan on presenting their stories, why they chose their line of work, some of their goals, strategies that they use to win elections, and also challenges that they face when running and also when in actual position um, in government, as well as, as I said, highlighting some of the contributions of, excuse my background, some of the contributions of African-American women globally. That's truly fascinating. And so I think it, uh, it, obviously there's a million directions that we could go with that based on this year's theme of breaking, uh, breaking the bias. Talk to us a little bit about why it's important to have um, diverse gender perspectives, diverse uh, racial perspectives, if we hope to break, break barriers, to break biases, especially in these different systems that impact all of us day to day. I don't think you could have policy that doesn't include women and also just diversity as a whole. Um, you know, that includes like age, uh, you know, being able or, or disabled, the sexual spectrum, just all sorts of different perspectives and background needs to be implemented um, and input into policy in order for us to be able to say that it's equitable. Um, some of the challenges that women face in academia and also in, in government as a whole include um, some of the biases that they experience in media, 
Um, you know, when they're running for office, they're scrutinized, their clothing, their hair, their personal lives are up for discussion or debate. Um, and men really aren't shown that way. Also, another bias is the marital status. There's an old-fashioned or traditional way of thinking um, that women who aren't married aren't fit to lead. Um, you know, a lot of them are seen to be as, you know, aggressive or not soft. And so that's unfortunately something that we see in many cultures when it comes to women in politics. Uh, as I mentioned, the age bias, people feeling like, you know, someone who's younger doesn't have the ability to lead. Um, you know, and also attributing youth with a lack of experience, which definitely isn't the case. And also, you know, just kind of that stereotype of women being either not tough enough or too emotional. These are all some of the things that we have to face as women in politics and, you know, women as a whole. So as I said, in order to have policy that's equitable, we need to actually include women um, and, you know, persons along various spectrums, different age groups, different religions, different ethnicities, different backgrounds as a whole in order to really understand and also, you know, be able to really just have equality across the board. Yes, thank you for that, Mia. I think you kind of illustrated and articulated that perfectly. I think one of the things that we hear across all the different topics we discuss at Tuesday Talks is the importance of having a wide range of stories being told and having a tremendous number of perspectives looking at and trying to understand the different challenges that we're looking to resolve. Um, Anna, this, this gets me thinking about some of the work that you all do that looks to uplift entrepreneurs, also a topic that comes up quite a bit here at Tuesday Talks. I wonder if you could share with us a bit more about the impact of the digital revolution on women uh, who are entrepreneurs and what are some of the fascinating things that you see that, again, might be tools to break the biases and create greater opportunities for folks around the world? Yeah, I mean, this is such an important topic. And again, if we think about um, kind of where I think Meta has a really big opportunity to, to contribute, um, it's certainly supporting small businesses um, and leveraging digital tools, messaging, which is really becoming a big thing um, across both nonprofits and small businesses at large. Um, when we, when we, we, our first year of serve our, our global survey, which I think is like the biggest, serves almost half a million people online digitally, which is for anyone that does surveying, that's like, bonkers that's super crazy it's really really a lot of people at a very low cost because it's digital there are obviously concerns around like what's the representativeness of, of the findings because it's a survey that's online and we have um, teams that are experts in survey science and whatnot that try to kind of take care of this look into the biases around that but but still that's something to recognize um but one of the big things two things that really struck me one was last year when covid hit um, across the board in almost all countries, we noticed that women reported um, concern around food security. Um, and I'm saying across the board, I'm saying in Sweden, in Finland, we had survey research where about 30%, 29, high 20 in, in the Nordic countries, but uh, high 30 in, in a lot of other parts of the world, uh, women were saying that they were worried about how they would be able to feed their families. Um, 
And then if you think about women's role, professional, as entrepreneurs, as, as small business owners, we also have a massive job at home, right? Of feeding the family, having care responsibilities, et cetera. So that was really, that really shocked me, I think, in terms of, of the impact of COVID and what that has done to women, women's opportunities, women's careers, women's increased kind of burden on caregiving responsibilities, et cetera. Um, so we decided to kind of drill deeper and kind of do more research and, and try to figure out how our platforms are really making a difference here. And across the board, we've noticed that women-led small businesses have been hit uh, much harder um, the last two years than, than men-led businesses. Um, for example, in the U.S., we've seen that business closures for women-led businesses is 6% over um, closures for men-led businesses, small, small businesses, I should say. Um, but we're, despite this, we're also seeing women being really resilient and adapting to this change by, by leveraging digital technologies, particularly when we're not able to actually, you know, have your business open or have your store or cafe open. Um, women turned uh, to digital tools. Uh, more than around 60% of women uh, who are registered small business owners have used digital tools for the last year to communicate and interact with their customers. And that number is a lot lower, actually lower than 50% for men. Um, so we're seeing women are stepping up. They're grabbing these tools. They're taking, making use of them, being kind of innovative and first movers in many cases, which I find super inspiring. Um, another area that has seen a lot of growth, uh, particularly as we have all been home for the last, I mean, I don't even know, can't keep track, two years almost, um, is Facebook groups. So people really found sort of Facebook groups and managed to connect with people that have similar communities or care about the similar things or needs help, um, similar areas of, of help. And 73%, I believe, of Facebook groups um, that were uh, related to entrepreneurship on our platforms had been created by women. So this is an interesting thing. We're seeing women kind of coming together, building that community online. Maybe they had that community offline before, or just kind of driving, doubling down on the online community just as, as a way to kind of reach different markets, different perspectives, add more diversity into the community and thereby strengthen it, strengthening it. Um, I think, I mean, from a personal perspective, mm -hmm. I'm really interested in Web3 and how this whole new kind of decentralized world is taking shape. Um, but similarly to when, when Web2 or kind of the, what we think of internet and, and the internet business today was created, there weren't all that many women who were drivers in that space. Um, we actually have this fascinating thought project collaboration with CARE right now where we're thinking about how could we enable women to be the creators of what the metaverse looks like for women? Why kind of wait until it was created and it isn't that great and it's not that equal and we try to fix it? Why don't we kind of get in from the start and build it bottom up in a positive, supportive and, and equitable way? Um, we're really not there. This is super early in the think thought process, but I would welcome anyone that kind of is frustrated with current states of affairs or kind of have fought a long time of against kind of biases and discrimination. There is an opportunity to also kind of start something new and, and build, create this world as it's taking shape. Um, and that's something that inspires me a lot when I think of 
my, I have two daughters at home. I, I adore them. Um, and I not really a kid's person. I didn't, I wasn't sure I would have children personally. Um, but having kind of being on that journey now, it adds a, an additional kind of layer of responsibility, I think for this, for our generation that is creating these things or allowing these things to happen. Like how do we jump in and actually make something good out of it? I'll stop. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So much there. I love, I love hearing about um, the way that people are forming partnerships and forming community. We think of Tuesday talks as like this fun breathing community where we're all learning together each week and sharing resources and ideas and I'm able to break through on some of the challenges that we're all thinking about and any space to me that that brings together kind of the ability for folks to bring their best ideas their best selves and work together really becomes a transformative place and that I think in a lot of ways Stephanie connects to some of the work that you all are doing looking at the way that partnerships allyships communities impact the work of the UN foundation how do you think that's going to impact the progress that that you all are looking to make in the coming years and what are you feeling most optimistic about so i think um for this question i'm going to go back to sort of the last point i referenced on generation equality which is sort of where we are in our um you know global feminist kind of journey together and to me sort of the potential of generation equality is that it is trying to create a new and transformative model for feminist multilateralism. And so, you know, if I break that down um, and give a little bit of background, you'll probably have seen that at the UN, negotiations are often stalled by countries that are opposed to women's rights or opposed to a range of issues on climate change or peace and security, what have you. And what I think is really intriguing about generation equality and the potential of these new types of partnerships is that it's really trying to create a model of sort of this coalition of diverse allies. Um, so through, you know, what is called the action coalitions with sort of within generation equality um, and cover a range of key gender issues like economic justice and rights, bodily autonomy, gender-based violence, tech and innovation, sort of much more, um, bringing these sort of coalitions of diverse stakeholders to push for action together. And I think that this really reflects just the changed world we live in and the increasing role of stakeholders beyond government in the way that we exist in the world and go about sort of our day-to-day -day lives. So it, you know, this sort of model really acknowledges, I think, the necessity of civil society, um, the power of the private sector, the new generation of youth leaders shaping the world. And what I will be very intrigued about over the next five years is really how we build bridges and trust, as you say, sort of between these communities and stakeholders to move forward, you know, a new and progressive vision for gender equality together. And I think there's, you know, two things about generation equality, one beyond sort of the, you know, floor of 40 billion worth of sort of commitments and pledges, which is fantastic. There's also kind of this global acceleration plan that sets out clear sort of measurable action with targets for monitoring. So on a lots of gender data over the next five years, hopefully being produced around this, um, you know, the commitments are sort of backed by resourcing. But beyond that, to kind of go back to the earlier point of what you know, the sort of the history of sort of the UN and its relationship to kind of movements and communities is that, you know, hopefully these coalitions of allies are really meant to be kind of connection spaces for diverse actors, for movements to support and learn from each other, um, for even, you know, potentially a transformation of power dynamics within these coalitions. So how do youth leaders stand shoulder to shoulder with heads of state 
or heads of, you know, multinational companies or heads of massive philanthropies? And, you know, how do they have equal, if not greater voice in terms of how we move forward together on, on what will be a five-year journey, journey, I think, to really revitalize the global feminist movement. So I think there will be lots to come from this space. Um, if you're interested in generation equality, there's going to be much released in the next few weeks at the Commission on Status of Women, including, you know, a commitments dashboard where you can kind of see the breakdown of commitments, you know, more updates on some of what the action coalitions are sort of doing together. Um, but for me, you know, it's kind of the next where we're living in the next part of the history. Um, and it's, you know, going to be hopefully a really exciting and transformative journey that we can all take together. Yeah, well, we're I'm personally excited and, and I think others in the community will be excited to uh, to hear and see what you all are coming up with, especially for organizations like CARE, some of our big funding partners. We're grappling with uh, many of these exact issues. How do we find ways uh, to to stand side by side with the folks that we're working with and the folks that are working on behalf to advance a more equitable view? How do we source ideas in ways that they don't die um, you know, so early in the process? because a person doesn't fit the stereotypical identity of decision maker uh, or innovator. So please keep us in mind. We, we'd love to learn from that going forward. Um, Mia, you, I saw you agreeing with the point about building a diverse coalition of allies. And that got me thinking about the political space and about how we um, you know, kind of rally around leaders. What are the things that you're learning or seeing from your research or even ideas that you've come up with that might allow us to create kind of some of these allies, some of these kind of coalitions uh, that lift up people even across difference at a time where we see such polarization in political spaces all around the world? That's a great question. Thank you so much for asking. I think one of the things that we have to do is really just start reaching out to people from different environments. Um, being more strategic in how we reach people. Um, for example, if you want to reach, I remember I was working with um, a student from one of my master's programs and she, her company was giving away $10,000 scholarship and internship in New York to five students, but they couldn't find any diverse students. And so I was saying, well, where have you been targeting? Where have you posted? Who have you communicated with? Um, you know, I think that targeting people based off of where they are. For example, if you're looking for African-Americans, um, great place of thought would be communicating with bodies of HBCUs or different Asian groups or Jewish groups or you know places where persons from various different spaces gather. I think you know there has to be strategy in how we build these relationships and how we develop the communities because there's a lot of misinformation and there's so much disconnection it's it's you know to me it's like wow you can't find five people to give ten thousand dollars to but when there is this huge gap in this disconnect you know it makes it a lot harder and i think that's why i say being intentional about where you position yourself how you communicate and who you communicate with, that would be pivotal. And that is transferable in politics, in education, um, you know, in seeking employers, et cetera. Yeah, and the spirit of that is, is exactly in line with why we started Tuesday Talks. 
um, I slash we uh, are tired of people saying we would have loved to hire or to select or to seek out a woman on that topic, but we couldn't find a person who was an expert there. I think we're, I don't know, Ladarian, keep me honest, we've done you know, hundreds of talks at hundreds of speakers, 90 plus percent of our speakers are women who have expertise from so many different fields. And it every week is a chance for us to kind of bump off those excuses um, that folks lift up about why they can't find insert identity to be an expert or to be a candidate for a thing. So, I mean, this community lives and breathes that every day. And I, I stand with you on that Mia as a thing that we have to continue to raise our voices around. Um, we have some great questions coming in from our audience members today. So Ladarian, I want to get you in here to guide us through that portion of the discussion. Yeah, perfect. Thanks, Ryan. And thanks to the speakers. This has been a great conversation so far. Um, but I want to build on a point that Stephanie made around building diverse allies. I think that's something everybody got excited about. I um, would love for each of you to maybe share some thoughts with us on ways that communities and individuals can get involved to push for gender equality. I think sometimes we think more so on terms of like big partnerships around gender equality, but just for your average day person um, who's looking to get involved, what are some ways they can uniquely kind of plug into this movement? Um, and maybe let's start with I think you your connection dropped there a bit, Ladarian, but I think you said Stephanie, then Anna, and then Mia. Yeah. It's a fantastic question. And I think that there is so, I mean, most of the way I, I focus on kind of the global level, but frankly, most of the work on all of this gender equality, feminist movement, social justice movement generally is of course done at the grassroots and community level. So I think that, you know, the question of how to get involved, I'm sure that there are so many, whether it's like local civil society, local sort of associations for social justice movements, um, or even kind of your local protest or march, you know, those are kind of the, the first, the first thing I would do is I think is sort of look in, in your own backyard. And I would say that you might be actually surprised at the types of communities or leaders or folks who are, you know, within kind Kind of a stone's throw of you um, who are already kind of doing work on this and need additional support or additional folks to kind of join um, their movement together. I also think that um, the virtuality of our lives, the digital, the digital nature of it also helps us to connect in surprising and fascinating ways. I've been really inspired by how youth activists have used TikTok, all sorts of other social media platforms to really activate and come together and build their own sort of digital communities around this work. So I think beyond sort of, you know, in person, if that's not available, there are so many digital spaces where, you know, you can learn, you can engage, and you can find out, you know, the best way to sort of activate um, in, in your community and for the issues that you care about in particular. Yeah, I think that was all great advice. I, I we, th we thought a lot about how to well, at the beginning of, of us engaging in, in gender equality and gender data as meta, we're such an elephant in the room and we really don't want to like mess something up. We want to, we don't always, it's not always easy to work with meta as well. Um, we're in the news a lot and, and there's a lot of kind of dis discussion about that. Um, so we've been quite careful about how to engage grassroots organizations and, and just try to make sure that we do it in a sustainable way. So it's not kind of an extractive, like, hey, does this look good? Do you think we should launch this? And then forget about them. Um, one way that have been really 
I think key to how, how we've done our work has been that we teamed up with a very credible um, sort of grassroots community organizer um, and support and like had them as sort of an advisor um, to us. So anything we wanted to do, any outreach, any panel we were, to, we were talking about putting together, we would then check with them to ask their network, is this is this good? Like, can we diversify this further? Uh, are we asking the right questions? Are we bringing the right people? Um, so I think it's it's okay to not be an expert in this and still want to be involved and still want to support this movement. Um, as long as you're kind of upfront about that, like that we are by far not experts here. We really just want to kind of support um, the actors in the ecosystem and um, yeah, just being kind of honest about that and trying to sort of ask questions more than having opinions and saying stuff, uh, I find goes goes a long way. Thank you, Stephanie and Anna. I, I agree with both of you and I loved your answers. Um, Stephanie, I agree with you about the grassroots and the community. I think it definitely starts there. My advice would be, um, you know, it would be grassroots as well. I, I like to communicate messages to youth. So going to speak at different schools, um, I think it really starts with the youth and educating them on gender roles, gender equality, the do's and don'ts. Because a lot of times youth don't actually know. A lot of guys don't know when they're doing something wrong. And it starts from when you're a child. I know that, um, you know, from doing a lot of youth work over the last 10 years in the field of psychology and working with kids where I had to explain to them, hey, no means no, not even just in the me too sense, but, you know, just sometimes young boys don't, they haven't been taught how to communicate or how to address young ladies. And so they aren't, trying to intentionally be harmful, but because they lack that education, you know, there's definitely a gap there. So I would say, you know, speaking to the youth and, you know, as Anna said, you don't have to be an expert. Be upfront. None of us know anything. Just because we're women, that doesn't mean that we know everything about how to be super, you know, equ equitable and sustainable and, you know, all of these trending words. So just working together, starting from a grassroots way and really just communicating with the youth and education is, is a huge piece. Thanks for that, Mia. And we had a Tuesday talk before on youth activism. So Ryan, I think it's time for us to have another one on youth empowerment, because I think it's super important that we do include them in these conversations because they are the next generation who will learn from us and kind of continue um, on with the torch. So another question that came in that's more on the fun side for you all is how are you all celebrating International Women's Day or just Women's History Month in general? I think for me particularly, I am a huge TV movie person. So I'm going and re-watching all of Shonda Rhimes TV shows. So like Scandal, How to Get Away with Murder. Shonda Rhimes is by far one of my favorite people ever. And I think she's definitely making history right now. Um, so if you all need Shonda Rhimes recommendations, please feel free to email me or reach out. I can definitely make recommendations, but we'd love to see how you all are celebrating today and this month in general. So maybe let's start with Mia and then we'll go to Anna and get our last word from Stephanie. 
I'm starting, well, I'm celebrating Women's Month by basically just, this is really fun to me. I'm kind of OCD with organization. So I'm just going through my files. I'm organizing things. I'm working closely with my assistant. I'm going to do a new photo shoot, update my website. These are all really exciting things to me. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, yeah, I, so I, I turned 40 uh, two weeks ago, and this is my year of celebrating my 40th, I've decided. So I'm investing in going to see friends. That's kind of my big uh, thing, which is hard when you have three kids to kind of carve out time for yourself, but that's a big thing. So this month of women, I love it. What I did this morning, actually, before this podcast, I'm in San Francisco, so it was a bit early is I jumped on WhatsApp and I recorded small video messages to a bunch of friends and, and women and, and ladies that have been in my life in different parts, being that I, I having that expat community again and just send it off. It cost me nothing, but it's super meaningful. Uh, and I feel like after two years of COVID, just having someone send you a message that like, I see you, you are so wonderful. You mean something to me um, is, is a good way to spread the love because we all could need a little bit of uplifting um, sometime. Love that. And I would say for me, um, I really miss being in person. I'm so grateful that we have the ability to connect virtually. I think it's so important for inclusion in so many ways, but I know that I recharge most, I think, when I'm in a room full of feminists and we can, you know, chat over coffee or argue over sort of a point. And so I am excited to be in New York for the Commission on Status of Women. It's a hybrid format this year, so it's usually in person, but it's mostly virtual, but there will be some meetings of partners um, and folks tonight. I'm going to a, uh, a, a premiere um, on, on the ch child marriage mini series from UNICEF. I'll drop it in the link, but it's, it's going to be fantastic, I think. And I'm just looking forward to be able to see people who, you know, I haven't seen in many years to, to meet new folks. And I think that for me, that's how I'm going to sort of both celebrate International Women's Day, but continuing to kind of celebrate Women's History Month by just making sure I'm connecting in all, in all the ways possible with so many women who sort of inspire and challenge and sort of push me to do more and better. Love that. Thank you, Stephanie. Yes, please drop the link um, to that video on the chat. I'll make sure to share it out with everyone. Perfect. So Ryan, I'm going to pass it back over to you for the last question. Excellent. Um, thank you again to our amazing speakers. Um, I'll speak for everyone and say we've learned so much from you and just enjoy being in conversation with you. Um, there's a ton for us to follow up on and to stay connected around going forward. We always wrap up Tuesday talks by asking our speakers to tell us one thing that you're doing these days to create joy in the world around you. Um, let's hear from Stephanie, Mia, and we'll get our last word from Anna today. So I'm not sure that this really creates joy between besides my own kind of small two-person household, but that counts. Um, that counts. That's the I, world okay, around me. We totally are down okay. with that. Yes. The, the sort of biggest source of joy um, for you know the past two years has been my cat Luna. So she was a pandemic foster fail. She's kind of behind me now. I'm not going to pick her up because that will startle startle her. But she is essentially always the most delightful part of my day. Um, as someone who did not grow up with a pet as a child, because I had really strict parents, um, it was really such a revelation to understand how animals can help you stay present in the moment, to remind you to, you know, 
be sort of taking care of another little creature as well as sort of yourself. Um, and so she's just been sort of the best work from home buddy. And it's been like really fun to just see her little personality um, and, and just her companionship throughout all of these crazy times. Awesome. Yes, I know uh, the value of that. Go ahead, Mia. Sorry, Ryan. Yes, um, I love that, Stephanie. I love cats. I recently got a cat of my own. And uh, also, happy late birthday, Anna. Yes, um, so I've been creating joy um, recently by traveling. That's literally like my favorite pastime. So I recently um, just come off of a Euro trip. I was visited Denmark, Finland, Poland, Hungary and England. Um, and that was really amazing. I got to see the Northern Lights and connect with several of my friends in different countries. So that was really awesome. And Anna, my best friend, one of my best friends is from Sweden, from Gothenburg. So she and I went to Norway and uh, we went to Bergen together. It was really awesome. Oh my gosh. I, I mean, the Nordic Lights, that's like when I was a kid, we saw them all the time. And I was like, walking home from school, eh, no big deal. Wow. And now like, I really want to go back and see them. I want to take my kids. Yeah, you have to. It's phenomenal. That's so incredible. Wow. Um, yeah, how do I, so how do I create joy? This is very selfish. I create joy for myself on the cost of my children, I think, but I take them outside. I live in Maine right now. Um, uh, kind of the pandemic allowed me to work remotely. So we're up in Maine, tons of snow everywhere. So I take them outside and I make them cross country ski because <laughs> it is so amazing to cross country ski and be outside in the winter. They're not quite there yet. I'm not going to say they love it. Um, but I do think that when we get back in and we have hot chocolate, they're sort of on board with the program. But that gives me incredible joy. <laughs> That's amazing. No, it counts. Like we get to make our kids do fun things to bring joy. I think that totally fits in there. Um, and Mia, you'll have to share travel itineraries with us. We are all excited to get moving again and see some of those amazing places. Um, we are unfortunately at the end of our time for today, um, but we really enjoyed the conversation. I'll invite folks who are able and willing, turn your camera on, turn your microphone on, join me in giving a round of appreciation and gratitude to our amazing speakers today. Thank you so much. Happy International Women's Day to everyone. Happy International Women's Month to every Women's History Month to everyone. DJ Sofa, over to you. Thanks for another amazing Tuesday talk. <laughs>